0: Welcome, everybody, to Black Coffee and Theology. Party people, I am so excited for the conversation that you are about to hear. And I have on the podcast today Dr. Jennifer Oz Freeman. She was a former professor of mine. And we're talking about her book, The Good Shepherd, which is fitting because I feel that Dr. Oz Friedman really embodied that um, Good Shepherd motif and the way that she interacted with her students and wanting us to be well-rounded students and showed genuine care for our education, and our, our souls, who we are as people. is beautiful. <laughs> um, I can't wait for you to hear that. It's a more of a scholarly conversation, and you all know that I try and bring uh, the, the scholarship side of the academy to regular people and us be in conversation with one another, right? Since this conversation, hey, Dr. Oz Freeman has been busy. She also has a new book. I don't think she even mentioned this on the podcast. <laughs> so it's called The Ashburnham Pentateuch and Its Context. The Trinity, in Late, the Trinity in Late Antiquity and the Early Middle Ages. Right? So go ahead and pick up that book. I just came from a book event about that. So sit back and relax and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Oz Freeman. Okay, everyone. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I, y'all, are in for a special treat. <laughs> I have a one of my teachers, former teachers, uh, Professor uh, Jennifer Oz Freeman on the podcast today. Welcome, welcome, welcome.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: (laughs) I'm happy you're here, too. I have um, and I will have said a lot about you in the intro, but I have uh, some of the most fondest memories uh, from being in your class. I am sad that I'm not in any of <laughs> more of your classes. Um, uh, Me too. Yes, I'm like there were such generative conversations, and I'll say this um, at this juncture: I really experienced you in the classroom as not just being excellent in your craft, but also open and adaptive, willing to hear from students, and that is rare. So thank you for that, truly. Thank you.
1: (laughs) That's good to hear what it's like on the other side.
0: Yes, it is not common. So (laughs) thank you, (laughs) truly. Um, uh, I tend to ask every uh, guest uh, this question of who are you and how do you show up in the world? And I'm always fascinated at all the answers. Everyone's different. (laughs) So who are you, Uh, Dr. Oz Freeman? (laughs)
1: Yeah. Um, I like that question, because it makes me think about who I am. (laughs) Um, I think if I want to have to boil it right down, um, my most succinct answer would probably be that I'm, uh, think of myself as an artist and an educator, um, and those things together. Um, I think I feel most, uh, kind of alive in conversation with other people, um, which is why my classroom is the way that it is, probably. Um, And I think of myself as a connector and facilitator. I'm very uh, fortunate to know so many brilliant and talented people in my life. And so it's just a joy to try and connect them to each other and see what happens. Um, Yeah. Mm,
0: I love that. Uh, a fun question I've been asking uh, some guests that now I'm curious for your answer is, uh, name a song that either describes your current mood or, <laughs> or, uh, you know, there's option B,
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, name a song that uh, you're really connecting with in the uh, new year.
1: Ooh, a song I'm really connecting with in the new year. Um. Well, I actually like literally just this week started listening to this artist, Omar Apollo, mm-hmm. um, who's a new, newish artist. Mm. Um, and something I was really struck by, I've just been listening to his whole album because it has so many different genres of songs in one album. <laughs> the album's called Ivory. And mm. It's something that's like it kind of puzzles me because it works in the album, and I don't really understand how that is that you could have so many different genres in one album and works, and I think maybe i'm attracted to that as an interdisciplinary person, and so i'm kind of fascinated, Mm -hmm. you know i'm interdisciplinary in academia. I'm fascinated to see that kind of like a parallel of that happening in music, and it makes me curious about it.
0: Good answer. I like that. <laughs> I'm going to uh, look, <laughs> um, <laughs> look it up. I So today we're talking about your book. One of your books, uh, <laughs> <laughs> The Good Shepherd, Image, Meaning, and Power. And one of the things that I love to do on this podcast is bridge the gap between regular, everyday people and those who are in academia and so i love that your book is accessible and uh for people because there are so many people who desire a higher level of education but can't afford it or have some other barrier that's in their way and so i like to bring resources to people who do desire Mm -hmm. to go deeper in a variety of topics right um and I guess my, before we hit the book, I'm so curious about how you would describe your place in the academy. Like, how do you define the work that you do? Because it is interdisciplinary. Um, and so, what is? How would you situate yourself in the academy?
1: Yeah. Ugh. I wish I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> Something I think about all the time, as you know. Um, yeah, I think I'm. I am very much an interdisciplinary. Plenary person having come to academics, like first from the perspective as a practicing artist. um, Which I think leads me to often different sets of questions, uh, maybe. Um, But to that kind of what I said to your first question about being a bridger facilitator type person, um, I think that's also what I enjoy academically is bridging disciplines and. um, Speaking to folks across. Disciplines, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. I'm, I'm more specifically what I try to do in my work is bridge religious studies or theology and art history, and especially I'm trying to help make art history more accessible um, and to you know colleagues and um, students and general population who's interested in religion and theology and help. help I can help them to see. That art history is also theological um and is a really rich source in like understanding you know historical theology contemporary theology contemporary religious practice mm-hmm. um, and you don't have to have a phd to do that <laughs>
0: <laughs> true true <laughs> true i am i'm curious in holding all of those things right like this historian piece this artist and the theology and weaving all those together like and being a woman in the academy what are the barriers <laughs> that you've encountered um like i don't assume it's been free and clear <laughs>
1: um, uh, yeah there's been there's been barriers for sure i um even within the you know the privilege that i have um i was also well i could say that i kind of came I came into academia, um, maybe without a full knowledge of it, I think a lot of people do, we kind of stumble into academia Mm, and not everybody sets out, you know, like, intending to have this track. Um, And my own family history is such that the household that I grew up in my, my mom and my stepdad, you know, didn't have college, college degrees or college education, they weren't. They were very supportive of academic study but didn't have experience in it. Um, And um, whereas my dad is a scientist and has a PhD, but I didn't grow up in the same house as him, I just saw him in the summers when I was growing up. So it was like this polarity of like kind of academic academic scientific study on one side and then. less formal education on the other side and so in navigating my own path as a first as an artist and then an art historian and through higher ed um it was very much like a process of discovery and looking yeah. back i would do it very much i mean i'm glad i'm thankful for where i've come to and and it's it's a very serpentine path that has included lots of things along the way but um uh maybe not the most efficient path I don't know um (laughs) and so I guess I try to pay that forward and be as transparent as possible when I'm talking with other folks in academia so Mm -hmm. I can like you know people can maybe benefit from the missteps I had or just the questions I didn't even know to ask in certain situations you know and I think mentorship is really I've had some significant mentors in my own life I think I didn't know that I could reach out and ask for mentorship, I think is one thing. Like there were some of those relationships that came to me. um, And I think a thing I would do differently is to seek those more actively out in a sense if if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, And then a gendered piece was that I, when I started my PhD program, I was a young mother. And thankfully, most people were very, um, Supportive and encouraging, and especially my dec- my doctoral advisor, Robin Jensen, was incredibly supportive. Um, but I did run into some things where there were spaces I wasn't welcome with a baby and things like that that were that caused me to question whether I belonged in the program at all and and things like that, but I stuck with it.
0: Mm, yeah, I'm glad you stuck with it. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Truly. <no. laughs> Truly <no. laughs> yeah, I um I think uh, transitioning to looking at this uh, wonderful work, uh, The Good Shepherd, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I will readily admit, um, I thought I knew going in uh, a lot of things about the shepherding (laughs) image (laughs) and how it's used in scripture and beyond. I was... Black uh, like people say, "Why woke?" <laughs> I was made to uh, come alive and realizing I did not know as much as I thought I did, and um, <laughs> I, um, I think it is important to you know mine out this idea of the good shepherd because it is used so often, um, both in in Christianity and beyond. And even now in our culture, just people use the shepherding language, right? Pulling on the strands of the Bible. Um, and in the introduction, you talk about uh, that you one of your hopes is to problematize this idea between the good shepherd and the enthroned Jesus. And um, right off the bat, I was like, wait. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, I'll stream it. (laughs) Um, So say more on that, please.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, uh, the project really started with like a hunch, um, which is, it tends to be how I pursue research projects. Um, It's very, and this is to the serpentine bit maybe of my life, it's always very exploratory. Like there's something that's kind of, bugging me or piquing my interest or something like that and I have that sense of like there must be more to this thing let's see what happens when we follow it. Um, And the good so the good shepherd was one where like you said it's this totally. kind of like mundane ubiquitous image in contemporary um, in contemporary Christianity in particular and kind of like culturally where it like is reproduced in like. I don't know, like Christian bookstores and statuettes and all these, you know, it's just this very like kind of a lot of songs, a lot of songs. That's right. It's a very sweet kind of image, I think, in its current iteration. Um, But actually, it was when I was in my coursework for my PhD program and uh, I was reading a text that kind of described in really explicit terms talked about the early Christian images of the Good Shepherd, which are found in catacombs in Rome. Um, and talked about it as this like anti-imperial, um, very docile, grassroots um, image, you know, and in contrast with um, the, like you said, the enthroned Jesus. So the, what's important to know about the transition that I'm talking about there is that in the year 313 CE, Christianity is legalized by the Emperor Constantine, who's known as the first Christian emperor. And you can debate what it means that he was considered a Christian and so on. But <laughs> people will. And people, <laughs> and people will. And people, that's right. That's a whole nother podcast. Uh, <laughs> Truly.
0: That's a roundtable podcast. <laughs>
1: that's correct. That's right. That's right. That would be fun. Uh, but what you know, the interpretations of these images have been kind of a pretty stark juxtaposition between the, the paintings, the fresco paintings of the Good Shepherd and the, the early Christian catacombs contrasted with um, the images of Jesus, these monumental images of Jesus, um, often in mosaic, but also in painting, um, where he's enthroned that were created after the legalization of christianity and those are kind of read as like the enthroned Jesus is reflecting the imperialization of christianity the corruption of christianity by the empire and that art is now using uh, iconography of empire to signal the divinity of of jesus um and i guess whenever i hear those stark kind of claims it just you know kind of makes me go well, is it though Uh, because what came to mind for me was immediately someone like david in the hebrew bible who was a shepherd and um, when he's basically giving his cv for why he should um, why he can take on goliath he says explicitly i'm a shepherd Um, Mm. i defend my flocks from wild beasts and if they come at me i kill them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's <was> like <laughs> basically it's like shepherding is a violent job and it basically equips me to be like a warrior. Um, and so just knowing that example, I thought it made me curious, you know, about what is the history of the shepherd is leader kind of motif. Um, and so basically I started uh the, the, the question that kind of like set me off on this track, I guess, was like, is are these two images the good shepherd of the catacombs and the enthroned Jesus really a stark are they really as far apart as they've been mm. made to to be have been described or. Is the shepherd image also an image of power, could we think about it that way, um, and then the question that follows from that is like what constitutes an image of power does it have to be an enthroned. Um, You know, person uh, that's not the only way that we think about power. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that kind of like set me off uh, and I just kept going back further and further. And so started with ancient Mesopotamia, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, which helped me to understand also the biblical, you know, the kind of references to shepherding. In the Hebrew Bible as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And I would love, you know, I, I sat with uh, chapter three, you talk about a lot about the shepherding image there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was rich, you know, I wish you could see how much I've uh, underlined stuff, but the whole chapter is underlined. Um, <laughs> but can you give uh, the, the listeners some context for shepherds? Um, and maybe the images and the meaning Uh, from mesopotamia onward Mm -hmm. because i i find this ignorance about shepherds and almost uh i was in a class actually (laughs) and um this thought that the shepherding image started in um in the bible essentially right and um, that it was being used in this particular way only in the bible and so can you give some context and some breadth to the image
1: yeah um Well, you know, the ancient, uh, ancient Near Eastern world, the ancient Mediterranean world, um, you know, was uh, characterized by agrarian societies. So there's just like in a practical sense, like shepherding is part of that, whether it's sheep or cattle or various kinds of animals. Um, And so there's a real concrete, like mundane reference to it, which is kind of also ironic because it's a, the shepherd leader was so favored as a m- metaphor by elite rulers, you know, that describe themselves mm. as shepherds, which is interesting too, because when you think of like the really, like the chasm <laughs> between those two figures and reality, um, we could kind of think about like, why, why is that? That um, some of the earliest uh, references that I found were in ancient Mesopotamia um, where rulers in Um, like public inscriptions and in legal codes. One of the most famous examples is the law code of Hammurabi, uh, where he talks about himself as the shepherd of the people, Um, and there's that's a very common phrase, shepherd of the people, but there's different iterations like shepherd of the city and and things like that. Um, Basically, in that context, it's used um, favorably to describe the ruler as somebody who guides and protects the people who are under, you know, the ruler's authority, um, it in the Egyptian context um, it shifts a little bit because it is associated with rulers. And um, you, a really easy example to think of is uh, funerary art in ancient Egypt, where the crook and the flail, um, which are two shepherding tools, are you know often depicted um, in the Catacombs of rulers, right? Um, but so, so are deities. Deities are also depicted with the, the crook and the flail. And I think part of that has to do with the uh, um, association between uh, Egyptian rulers and the um, e- Egyptian deities. Um, it also plays a significant role um, in transition to the afterlife or ideas of the afterlife. Um, for both the ruler and the deities, um, and so you have that shepherding language. Part of this is due to you know the fact that most of the ancient Egyptian art that survives is funerary because it was buried. <laughs> so if there are other if there were other uses of it, uh, we have we do
0: not know. <laughs>
1: <yeah>. <laughs> the most of the examples are funerary because they were buried, um, and so you have to kind of take that with a bit of grain of salt too. But it it is um, well represented in funerary art and texts. Um, with this idea that uh you can be shepherded into the afterlife and so when you that's something that also persists in um ancient Greek mythology um with figures like Orpheus and Hermes mm. um Orpheus was not necessarily a shepherd but is somebody who tamed wild animals with his music uh um and that's something that early christian authors will compare to jesus explicitly and say jesus is like orpheus because he uh tames the human soul um Mm. and so but hermes is somebody who is depicted the, the god hermes with as a shepherd and often carrying um a ram on his shoulders um there's not just the caretaking elements though um For example, in Homer's um, epic poem, the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, Mm. shepherding imagery is all over the place in there, and it's especially applied to deities and to these kind of military general figures. Um, And so, you know, for example, if there's, there's some scenes where um, one of the kind of, I guess, general type figures is is gone. And the vulnerable warriors who are left at the camp are described as sheep without a shepherd, and then they're like prone to attack. And so there's, and there's likewise, um, some kind of like wolf-like imagery too, which is a piece that accompanies uh, shepherding imagery often a lot. Um, So there's like these violent connotations you see um, in uh, Greek philosophy, that's like basically kind of trying to articulate what's the ideal ruler. Um, Shepherding Mm. language gets used there too um, and kind of compares the guidance of a shepherd to the laws of a king.
0: What's in my cup? What's What's in my my cup? cup? Now's the time of the podcast where I share with you what's in my cup. What's in my cup? I have this company huck and they have this flores bay blend bayless blend and that's what's in my cup it's it's a beautiful little cup of coffee i've still been using my aeropress so hey <laughs> yes
1: um and that's also a place where you see shepherding being used in a negative sense where flocks are referred to as like that subjects are like m- can be like mindless flocks of sheep um mm, so there's yeah. some critique there's elements where this language gets used to critique both subjects and rulers um in different ways because there can be you know bad or lazy shepherds um who are bad rulers who don't really care for or protect their um their subjects so like all of that that's just a few examples but no, all of those I love that. uh yeah kind of you have All of that stuff I read as backdrop to the early Christian use of the good shepherd, because you have these connotations of divinity of um, defensive violence and protection. Um, You have uh, connotations of like safe passage to the afterlife Um, and these things are often associated with or are used by elite figures right Yeah, Um, it's a that's where that, those conversations are happening. Um, mm-hmm. And so when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John 10, um, you know, there's that kind of mundane reference. Sure, there's just shepherding is common, and he's a good shepherd. Yeah. <laughs> but there's been rhetoric around shepherding rhetoric. for thousands yeah. of years before that. And so I can't help but think of it at least a partial uh, invocation to that.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, what I was struck by as I was reading through the book, it really connected a lot of dots, because you think, you know, at least I think, I don't want to sit, put this out of this, I think of, you know, the, the Bible sometimes being written in a vacuum, mm-hmm. in the biblical writers just writing, you know, just had an idea one day, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> the lamb in the center of the throne, you know, like, sounds, sounds lit. I... <laughs> But really thinking about that, there already had been this awareness of all of these motifs, all these things that you're thinking about. There had already been this artwork and this um, these different narratives in, in surrounding nations that are informing how these biblical writers are writing, that connection, both of uh, 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 surrounding thoughts and the art like the art was informing the theology too like people yeah. were aware of this and so when they're writing these different texts or they're uh, illuminating something Jesus has said in reference to the shepherd they are making connections for mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. and so talk about that in the early church how the art and you know that intersection with art and theology and the written text yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah that's a great question see if i can do it (laughs) (laughs) well i think the thing that that why images are powerful and Mm. um and useful um and especially in the early christian context when you know for the first few centuries of christianity it's still a kind of marginal occasionally persecuted um and when it's persecuted it's pretty intense but Uh, minority religion, so um, it behooves them to have artwork that's maybe not necessarily recognizable, um, or is ambiguous. Um, And there are art historians who have um, documented uh, all of this, like uh, Paul Corby Finney and Robin Johnson. Johnson. Um, But speaking of the Good Shepherd in particular, I think that's exactly the power of that image, because The good shepherd already existed in Greco Roman art as a figure or kind of we could say, maybe not good shepherd, but like the philanthropic shepherd or Mm. or this. um, I mean, and and philanthropic in the sense that it's also used as a as a personification of the virtue philanthropy Mm. um, and has all these other references like Hermes and Orpheus. Um, So in in in, say the early Christian catacombs. you know, the shepherd can, can refer to philanthropy, can refer to that in one image, in one instance, you know, in a kind of layered, uh, sense, um, can invoke those things along with, um, actually baptism, uh, reference one's baptism, because in the baptismal rite, um, Psalm 23, is that the Mm -hmm. right one? The Lord is my shepherd. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Psalm 23 would be recited as part of the baptismal liturgy, um, in the third century, uh, one of the, probably the, the earliest surviving baptistry we have, uh, is from Dura Europus in Syria, dates to the middle of the third century. And in that instance, there's an image of a shepherd over the baptismal font. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of like liturgically, you know, reinforces the liturgy that the person would be partaking in, right? So you could have in that funerary context through the image of the Good Shepherd, a reference to John 10, a reference to Psalm 23, mm-hmm. a reference to the you know the idea of philanthropy as a virtue, um, a reference to you know the biblical shepherds like David and Moses um, who came before. you know so it's a very it's it's deceptively simple um but I think actually is very rich and complex and it's that kind mm-hmm. of flexibility that the image has um that gives it this power and you mentioned the it kind of in passing there the lamb you know and that's mm-hmm. another piece of this is the lamb of God um, or the Agnes Dei in Latin um which uh you know when Um, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world um, is one of those references. Also in the book of Revelation, where it describes um, a lamb seated on a throne. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is the, I think the significant, um, interesting turn that happens in the Christian use of the good shepherd, which is that you have all of that long, violent, political imperial divine you know backdrop to the shepherd what the christian usage does of that is that jesus is not just the shepherd but he's also the sacrificial lamb and mm. so it's this you know the shepherd victim or yeah. that that image of power and powerlessness that basically takes this the structures of empire and all these things and flips it on its head um mm. which is really where it um i think uh is it's maybe most effective and most original in that, in that sense. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I, I uh, I'm glad you hit that shepherd victim portion too. And I was also struck thinking about the ways that this imagery was used in connection to power, especially you talked about the transition a little bit with Constantine. Mm -hmm. I hadn't even thought Of rulers being referred to in this way right and so Mm -hmm. thinking about the biblical writers even writing out of you know out of that context I hadn't I just hadn't thought that (laughs) (laughs) it's like I never would have thought of the emperors being referred to in this light yeah
1: yeah and by by referring to themselves as that and you see with with Christian emperors referring to themselves as shepherds, which, like I said, there's already a long tradition of, you know, pre-Christian, before Christianity, uh, rulers referring to themselves as shepherds of the people. But when Christian rulers do it, like Constantine and Charlemagne um, later, what they're doing is all, presenting themselves as, um, yeah, political leaders, but also leaders in the church, and so as the as the shepherd in that sense, they're you know they're defending their subjects you know from political threats and things like that but they're also def- or at least they're thinking of themselves as defending their subjects from heresy and so hmm. um yeah
0: <laughs> that's enough podcast too yeah
1: that's right <laughs> with
0: the strong drink that's <laughs> <No>. right, <laughs> <Woo>. that's right.
1: <laughs> count me in <laughs> yes
0: like <My> lord <laughs> yeah so they are defending in that way yeah. And I even think about the critique. You know, there was an atheist, uh, blanking on his name, an atheist emperor. And part of the critique against him was using that language. That's um, right. Shepherd yeah. To critique. Julian.
1: Yeah. Julian the Apostate. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great, name. <laughs> Great name. Great name. Yeah. So they were, that's right. They were making fun of him um, for, <laughs> yeah, being uh, kind of bloodthirsty on account of all the, sacrifices he was making and um Mm. made fun of his beard as well
0: i know yeah i was like wow right (laughs) they're just sneaking all the shots low blow yeah (laughs) all of us are not blessed in the beard area okay Right. i'm curious how this work has affected your theological um framework and how, like Hmm. how has both the research, um, in the, in different texts, looking Hmm. at different art images, thinking from these multidisciplinary ways, how has that affected how you see things?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it really, I, I think I had a hunch about this when I started, but really when the project was all done and kind of looking at it, um, it really struck me that there's probably lots of theological images and concepts that, that this kind of work could be done with. Um because it's something that's so commonly invoked. It's yeah. it's used in pop culture in ways, it's used in religious art. It's used, you know, all these different um components, but it really is so much more complicated than it sees seems to be at first. Um, And so I think it's given me a new appreciation for, uh, just in general for theological concepts that seem like old hat in some way. And Mm -hmm. um, what might happen if we, I mean, it takes a lot of time and effort. (laughs) So, um, but I think there's maybe even smaller scale ways that we can kind of cultivate curiosity about um, theological ideas that have been around for a long time and see if, we can maybe nuance and trouble them a bit. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. For me, it's done two things. One, um, it has made me thoughtful about referring to uh, God as a shepherd. Um, like, because it makes that way more three-dimensional realizing, yeah. you know, I'm not connected to agrarian society. I'm, you know, I'm just adopting it because we're all, you know, we're all in the club and we're all saying it. Um, you know, um, who am I to question? But but then now thinking this has helped to make the concept of the shepherd, the lamb, you know, the sh- the shepherd victim it's made a a lot more three-dimensional, right, uh, for me, uh, which I love anything that does that um, personally. And then secondarily, uh, the concept uh, of image, meaning, and power, it has helped me think of uh, those things outside of this whole conversation, right? And I think Mm. of those images that, that are common, you know, like common in the black community that, you know, that uh, speak to so many different levels of our experience that, you know, that image, meaning and power piece. Mm -hmm. Um, And so here we're doing it with the the good shepherd, but I think of those things that are are common knowledge in my community and that have those three things, right. And how powerfully they speak, both spiritually um, ethic wise Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're able to communicate a lot of different things. And so, Um. so it's helped me think more thoughtfully about that uh, and wanting to unearth a lot more of those mm, um, yeah. in, a, in a more intentional way so thank
1: you <laughs> well that's great to hear yeah that's a great outcome okay.
0: <laughs> no it's helpful especially you know as a creative not just a theologian but as a creative thinking about image meaning and power uh is important to me um mm-hmm. and so yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> mm. <Welcome. laughs> no problem. I'm curious. My last question to you is twofold <laughs> an A and a B. Where yep. can people find you? And then two, <laughs> What works do you have on the horizon? Mm. Um, uh, <laughs> this is time to plug uh, your stuff. <laughs> Where so, can
1: people find me?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, they can find me in St. Paul, Minnesota.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in the snow. In the snow. <laughs> At United Theological. That's right. <laughs> That's
1: right. Um, I'm on the platforms, you know, also. <laughs> I have a pretty... Uh, silly Instagram account, (laughs) where I make random artwork sometimes. Okay, (laughs) that's where my sometimes that's at Oz Freeman. Mm. Um, My works in progress. Uh, Yeah, so you know, I've wrapped up two book book projects in this last year. And now I'm kind of like pivoting and thinking about next things. Mm. Um, Probably my project that's most underway right, right now although it only has a kind of a working title um but is something like church history and 100 objects um mm-hmm. or historical theology and 100 objects tbd um to be published with baylor university press because i had such a great time with them on the first book um, and really what i'm trying to do in that book is um it'll be a bunch of it's a cure it's a curated collection of images and objects and buildings spanning from um, the earliest uh, Christian images and objects in the late second, early third century, um, all the way up to contemporary times. Um, And uh, we'll have some introductory essays and things like that, but is really just trying to model in a bunch of brief entries for each image, how one might theologically interpret um, religious art basically making the argument you know that for um most of christian history most christians have been illiterate and so we can't just look at texts when we're trying to understand uh a mm. christian theology um and so hoping to give non-art historical folks some tools and easy access to doing that work a kind of a first foray into mm. interpreting like that mm. um It'll be hard to limit to 100 objects, but <laughs> you know how I'm greedy with yeah, images. Once I get greedy. started, <laughs>
0: yeah, and the editor is going to be like, I said, Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> right. It's like
1: just 1,000. Yeah, exactly.
0: 10,000 objects in this. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. I think that'll be part of the fun is having to really select carefully representative, both representative images, but also some maybe images that folks have never you know, encountered before and to broaden mm-hmm. what, what folks might anticipate in terms of um, the history of Christianity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Dr. Oz Freeman, thank you for joining us. black coffee and theology pod is a production of three black men the podcast about theology culture and the world around us follow us on twitter at three black men if you like the content that you are receiving here and want to receive more whether that is in longer conversations essays devotions and videos from either myself sam or trey please sign up for a for our patreon at patreon.com slash three black men don't forget to like rate and review black coffee and theology pod as well as three black men